and welcome to the EBPL podcast, brought to you by the East Brunswick Public Library. We are known as our community's living room, so in this podcast, you will enjoy original, exclusive content, as well as encore presentations from events you have missed. This event was presented as part of our Just for the Health of It initiative. Just for the Health of It is a proprietary health literacy program developed by the East Brunswick Public Library to promote health literacy in Middlesex County. To learn more, visit justforthehealthofit.org. Now, enjoy the program. Welcome and thank you everyone for joining us for today's Lunch and Learn, Breast Cancer Statistics, Prevention, Early Detection, and Treatment Advances. My name is Kathy Churn, and I'm a consumer health librarian at East Brunswick Public Library. Today's program is brought to you by Hackensack Meridian Health and the Library's Just for the Health of It initiative to promote community health and wellness. Our speaker today is Dr. Renee P. Armour, MD, FACS, breast oncologic surgeon at Hackensack Meridian Health and JFK University Medical Center. Please be aware that this talk is being recorded. Please keep your microphones muted and your webcams are off. When available, the recording will be uploaded to ebpl.org slash YouTube. If you have any questions, please type them into the chat box. Our speaker will answer questions at the end of the talk. Please be aware that the speaker cannot provide medical advice to attendees during this program. And without further ado, I'll turn things over to Dr. Arnold. Hi, thank you all for joining us. I'm just gonna give you a little talk, uh, like she said, about the statistics and prevention and how we are treating breast cancer nowadays and um, the importance of early detection. Next slide. So in the US in 2021, it's estimated that uh, 281,550 new cases of invasive breast cancer are going to be diagnosed in women by the end of this year. Uh, 49,290 new cases of non-invasive breast cancer will be diagnosed and approximately 2,650 new cases of invasive breast cancer are going to be diagnosed in US men by the end of the year. Next slide. After skin cancer, breast cancer is the most common cancer in women. It accounts for one in four cancers diagnosed in women. Um, after lung cancer, it is the second leading cause of death, uh, cancer deaths in women. It's the number one cause of cancer deaths in Hispanic women. Male breast cancer is a small portion of all of this. It's approximately 1% of all the breast cancers that we see. So in our lifetime, there's a 13% or one in eight lifetime risk of developing breast cancer and a 3% risk of dying from breast cancer in a lifetime. Next slide. 85% of people newly diagnosed with breast cancer do not have a family history of breast cancer. This is important because a lot of my patients come in and, and they tell me you know, that they found a lump but they're not concerned because they don't have a family history. And actually most people diagnosed with breast cancer do not. Only three to 5% of breast cancer is related to any genetic mutation in one of the genes that increase our risk for breast cancer. And then 15% of the people that have a strong family history of breast cancer at the time of diagnosis, only about 15% of those will actually have a genetic mutation that causes breast cancer. Next slide. 
So this is just a table of the probability of developing breast cancer by age, because uh, it changes by age. Obviously, as we get older, um, we're more likely to develop breast cancer um, and other cancers. Risk is pretty low in your 20s, but not zero. I do have breast cancer patients diagnosed in their 20s. It's about one in 1,479 um, women, chance of dying about one in 18,500. So 0.1% of people with um, breast cancer in their 20s. But when you go up, the highest group we'll see is in your 70s, about one in 25 people will be diagnosed with breast cancer and one in 132 will actually die of the disease. So it just increases with age. So it's important that we keep screening. And that equates, uh, like I said, to a lifetime risk of one in eight. Next slide. So this is a chart based on race and ethnicity. So it's not an equal you know, disease across all. It affects everybody a little bit differently. Um, we see more breast cancer incidents, more diagnosis in non-Hispanic white women, and we see the least amount diagnosed uh, in Asian Pacific Islanders. But interestingly enough, so the light pink bar that you see is uh, incidence. And to the left, you'll see non-Hispanic white is the highest incidence. And then you'll see the next highest incidence is in non-Hispanic black. But if you look at the death rate, that's the bright hot pink bar, you'll see the highest death rate is in non-Hispanic uh, black women. And the lowest death rate is in the Asian Pacific Islanders. So even though the incidence is less in, in the African-American population, death rate is higher. And the next slide is gonna explain a little bit more why that occurs. So we have different types of breast cancer. Everybody's not diagnosed with the same type. By far the most common breast cancer is where you see the hot pink uh, slice of this pie, which is her uh, hormone receptor positive. That's estrogen and progesterone. Our body hormones stimulate the breast cancer to grow and HER2 negative. They're, that's a copy of a protein that some cancer cells overexpress, but most breast cancer, 73%, do not express. So this is the most common type of breast cancer, hormone receptor positive and HER2 negative. And then you'll see the least common is just HER2 protein overexpression with, with negative hormone uh, receptors and about equivalent for what we call triple negative versus triple positive. And Triple negative, meaning there's no estrogen or progesterone driving the cancer, and there's no overexpression of this protein, this HER2 new protein. Um, triple negative is the most difficult to treat. We don't know as much about it. And this gray bar, we will see. Next slide. Um, this dark gray bar of triple negative is highest in the non-Hispanic, uh, Black or African-American population. So that would be the reason why you see a higher um, death rate. And this is stage for stage diagnosed at the same stage of breast cancer. Um, the death rate is higher for African-American women. And that is uh, because you see this increase here. It's a more difficult cancer to treat. The remainder of the populations you see have about equal amount of risk of triple negative breast cancer. Um, and the various other types of breast cancer. And overwhelmingly, the majority of all of them, we see the hormone receptor positive, the hot pink bar, um, and the HER2 new protein uh, negative. Next slide. 
So there's trends over time, over the years. Uh, so we've learned more about breast cancer um, for incidents in breast cancer. And, you know, back in 1975, 1980 to 1980, rates were essentially constant. And uh, then we saw an increase in rates in the 80s. They increased by about 3.7% per year. Um, and then continued to increase, but at a slower increase between the 80s and early 2000s. And then finally, in the early 2000s, we saw rates begin decreasing. Um, and since that time, relatively stable in the earlier parts of uh, like 2005 to the 2010s range, uh, we did see, however, at that time period, an increase in uh, non-invasive, that we call in situ breast cancer. And a lot of the, the later trains, uh, trends from the 2000s on has to do with um, diagnosis, ability to diagnosis, our diagnostic modalities and how much they've improved. So stage zero breast cancer may not actually be increasing, even though it appears to be increasing, but we're finding it earlier. And because it, we're finding it earlier, it may look increased because believe it or not, not all stage zero or in situ breast cancers will become invasive breast cancer. So there's people that may have lived with it their whole life not knowing that it's there. Um, and now that we see it, we have to treat everybody because we don't know who is going to go on to develop invasive and who is going to stay stage zero. So this increased incidence in the you know, earlier 2005 um, the 2008 range is probably not real and just our better diagnosis. Um, slight increase in invasive breast cancer uh, between 2012 and 2016. And at that time, DCIS, that's the stage zero, has declined again because we've leveled off this, this better imaging. Next slide. Invasive breast cancer, um, by, by stage that it's found uh, has different survival rates. And this is just a general, we use five-year survival rate uh, to estimate um, survival. If you are diagnosed with localized breast cancer stage one, you see five-year survival rate is 99%, two and three, 85%, still, still great. And then stage four is where it drops to 27 um, uh, percent five-year survival. So stage four is the disease that we consider um, treatable but not curable because that means it's now left the breasts and um, distant regions of the body, which is uh, harder to keep at bay. Next slide. Since 1989, death from breast cancer has been declining, um, declined 40 percent in fact by 2017. Um, cancer mortality rate for women has, has declined and mortality from breast cancer declined faster for women under the age of 50. Um, and this is, and this is regardless of race. And this is highly likely because of the, um, screening and the importance and press for screening and how we, um, do events like this to make people aware of the importance of screening prior to that before the age of 50, it was probably not as, as common, but it's done huge um, wonders for survival. And although the decline in breast cancer has slowed, um, there's probably some more people to reach that are not doing the screening because 
majority of people screened for breast cancer are caught at stage zero or stage one. And you saw the difference in that other slide for the survivals for stage one versus um, later. Next slide. So there's risk factors for breast cancer. Um, some of those we can't change. And this is just a list of what we, we can't help, we can't change. Risk factors, the older we get, we can't change our age or our race. We can't change when we got our first period or when we stopped getting periods. So the importance of when these things occur is the longer we're exposed to estrogen, let's say we get our first period when we're nine and we keep having it until we're 57. That's a longer lifespan of being exposed to estrogen. There's a higher risk that finally, some point in our life, even after menopause, we'll get a um, estrogen related breast cancer. We can't help our genetics, whether our mothers, sisters, daughters had breast cancer. We cannot help gene mutations. These are various gene mutations. Everybody's heard BRCA, the BRCA, but there's other mutations that we test for now and have been able to test for um, that are considered not experimental anymore since around 2014. And that's CHECK2, P10, there's ATM, there's various mutations that all contribute to, there's PALB uh, gene, there's various ones that make you at a higher risk for breast cancer. Um, but this is not something we can control for. We can respond differently knowing that it's there. We can't help if we've had prior breast biopsies or radiation therapy. Uh, a lot of times people back, you know, my middle age group, when people I knew were younger, uh, young teens, they got uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma, they were treated with mantle radiation, radiation to the chest wall. They can't help that. And that is a risk factor for breast cancer. Um, there was a pill given, a medication given to mothers of infants, DES, and any offspring, daughters whose mothers took that are at a higher risk for breast cancer. We can help dense breast tissue. That's something that makes you at a higher risk, depending on your age. Everybody young is gonna have dense tissue, but when the dense tissue persists at an older age, it increases your risk for breast cancer. Here, we can't do anything about our hormone levels. And believe it or not, tall stature is affiliated with a higher risk of breast cancer. Next slide. There are many lifestyle and things that we can alter to some degree. Um, if you know you have other risk factors, people that have first child earlier at a younger age um, are less likely to get breast cancer. Hormone replacement therapy increases your risk of breast cancer. So if you already have a risk, you certainly wouldn't wanna do that. Oral, con oral contraceptives increase your risk for breast cancer. But interestingly enough, if, if you stay off of oral contraceptives for five years, by the time you're five years out, that risk normalizes. So it's within the five years of while you're on it, within the five years of stopping it, that it puts you at increased risk for breast cancer. Obesity puts you at increased risk for breast cancer. Majority of breast cancer is related to estrogen. And when our ovaries stop working, and even when they, when they are working, but our body fat is turned into estrogen binding enzymes. So even when our ovaries stop working, our body fat is making estrogen. So estrogen-related cancers are going to be higher um, and more likely to occur in people with uh, an abnormal um, weight. Alcohol intake increases your risk, even in moderation, not breastfeeding. Again, the breastfeeding ties into um, levels of estrogen because while you're breastfeeding and while you're pregnant, uh, you majority have a, a progesterone and not an estrogen um, drive in your body. Smoking increases your risk for breast cancer, and, and we're not sure why, but night shift work increases your risk for breast cancer. 
um, physical inactivity is going to tie into um, the obesity. Next slide. Okay, there's false risks, risks, urban legends. A lot of people come in and ask about them, but there's no proof of any of these increasing your risk for breast cancer, antiperspirants, underwire bras, induced abortions. This is nothing that's ever been proven. Um, breast implants do not increase your risk for breast cancer uh, as we know it. There is a specific type of implant that was used that's no longer used that very rarely can be associated with not breast cancer, but a cancer called lymphoma. So if you've heard about implants causing breast cancer, that would be that particular implant. Um, and it is not a breast specific cancer that is occurring there. Next slide. So breast screening, um, what do we do? We should know what the normal look and feel of our breasts. Um, you should get a clinical breast exam by your, your physician every year. Your gynecologist usually will do that. A mammogram, digital mammogram with or without uh, ultrasound. And I say with or without, some people require ultrasound because of their breast density to see in the tissue better. Um, 3D mammogram, which is also called tomosynthesis is required for a lot of people with dense breast tissue. And even people that don't, it does increase the risk of, I mean, increase the chance of finding invasive breast cancer. So the chance of finding it um, is increased to 40% above if you're just doing a regular digital mammogram. Um, risk assessment models help to screen. So we have assessment models that help us tell who's at higher risk. And based on that risk, and if it's above 20% lifetime risk, you may need uh, additional screening like MRI. MRI is screening for high-risk breast cancer patients, either by screening model of which family history comes into play, a prior biopsies comes into play. Um, but MRI is also um, uh, used for people that are genetically positive and choose to keep their breasts. So genetic testing is indicated based on, on history. Uh, this helps with breast cancer screening as well. Next slide. So what are our screening guidelines? Um, guidelines change a little bit based on what review board you're looking at. U.S. Preventative Task Force Services differs uh, greatly from um, American Cancer Society, which also differs from um, American Gynecology. So what is the standard that I recommend and most clinicians recommend? Yearly mammograms are recommended at age 40 um, and continuing for as long as a woman is in good health, meaning there's no set time to stop. If you don't have another competing disease that's going to end your life within the next couple of years, you should be screening for breast cancer. Um, clinical breast exam every three years for women in their 20s and 30s, and every year for women in their 40s is how, how that's done. Uh, 40 and over every year. Women should know how their breasts normally look and feel, as, as we mentioned, and then any change should be reported to your physician as soon as you notice it. Um, breast self-exam is an option. It does add to a lot of extra testing and anxiety, especially for people that have cystic and lumpy breasts. Um, but if it's not gonna do that, then that's helpful as, as well. Uh, it's not something, it's a standard that you must do uh, because of these other, these other factors that you can end up getting too much testing, too many biopsies based on um, thinking or perceiving you feel something. 
Um, some women based on family history, genetic tendency, certain other factors uh, should be screened with MRI in addition, as mentioned above to mammograms. And they may need to start screening before the age of 40. Uh, it's recommended, for example, if you have a first degree relative diagnosed with breast cancer, you would need to start screening at least 10 years before they were diagnosed. So if they're diagnosed at 40, you want to start screening at, screening at 30. If they're diagnosed at 35, you want to start screening at 25, et cetera. Next slide. Okay, so what are signs and symptoms of breast cancer uh, to look for? Palpable lump is the most common presentation. And most commonly that lump is, does not hurt. It is painless, it is hard and it's fixed, meaning it doesn't wiggle all around when you push on it. The other thing that you can look for and needs attention right away, skin changes, your tissue feels a little bit thick, it's red, uh, you see dimpling somewhere. If your breast is swelling, uh, especially asymmetric, it's swelling one side to the other, that's something that needs to be addressed with your physician. Bloody nipple discharge um, is something that needs to be addressed. It's something that always requires surgery, but thankfully the majority of the time, it's a benign tumor called papilloma, but it's a tumor that generally we take out because it can turn into something more significant in the future. And a couple percentages of the time when you see the bloody nipple discharge, it is a cancer. So this is something that always needs to be followed up and brought to your physician's attention. Um, nipple changes, they feel thick or they're red or they're starting to invert when they have always been everted or out. Um, so changes, not somebody that's always had innies or inverted nipples their whole life, that's fine, that's normal, but it changed to your normal. Lymph nodes, if you feel lumps under your armpit that are enlarged, that's a, a sign and symptom of breast cancer possibly. And of course, abnormal imaging when you go is a, a sign and symptom. Next slide. So these are just some um, pictures that we see. This is an example of a nipple retraction that you see with the nipple going in. Um, and generally, there are benign things that can cause nipple inversion. Um, something that is very common in postmenopause is ductectasia. It tends to occur slowly. It tends to occur on both sides, so one can start going in more quickly than the other. Um, and with this finding of ductectasia that is benign, you can always pull the nipple back out. Um, classic for cancer is you can attempt to evert that nipple. It's not going anywhere. It's being tethered from behind by a tumor that's uh, holding the ligaments of the breast down. Uh, so anytime you see nipple inversion that is new, that's not been with you your whole life, you need to bring it to the physician's attention so they can determine which is which. Next slide. This is a classic example of Paget's disease. Um, nipple excoriation, your nipple starts to disappear. It may start out as just, you know, a little um, flakiness, chafing, and then you notice a scab form, it falls off, it forms again, and it continues until eventually it will excoriate and take over the whole nipple. It's a classic presentation of Paget's disease. You can barely see where the nipple is um, here over in that lower left-hand side. Uh, the rest was areola, and it's important that as soon as you start seeing a recurrent um, scab or, or sore on your nipple, that you get it evaluated while it's small and before this, this occurs. Next slide. 
you've heard maybe of peau d'orange, which is skin of an orange um, in French. And if you look at it, it looks like you're looking at a, a orange. That dimpling, that pulling in of every little, um, um, every little area that you see the dimpling, that is uh, a sign and possible symptom of something called inflammatory breast cancer. When you see this, you have to assume it's inflammatory breast cancer, especially if it occurs, occurs quickly. Can it happen with um, other diseases? Yes, infection, what we call mastitis or cellulitis can cause this, uh, but it really has to be managed quickly to determine again, what, which it is because inflammatory breast cancer is very difficult to treat and treatment needs to be started right away. So you see this dimpling, this potorange, then you need to be um, seen immediately. Any of the pores being pulled in, you, you call your physician. Next slide. This is a different kind of uh, dimpling. Instead of the pores in the skin uh, dimpling in, you see a generalized dimpling or, dimpling or pulling in of the breast. Sometimes this occurs just like this patient with you just staring at it. Sometimes it occurs only in certain positions. So, you know, if you put your hands on your hips or put your hands above your head, you can see changes to the shape of your breast or pulling in that weren't there previously that needs to be um, seen by a physician. So that's why it's important to know how your breasts look and feel. It's important to take a look in the mirror, put your hands on your hips, raise them above your head, make sure they look the same as they always looked. Um, and if you see any changes like this or even a slight form of this, or even if you're not sure if it's pulling in, give your physician a call, come in and see us so we can have it evaluated. Next slide. And here's an example of breast swelling and asymmetry. One side's different than the other. She even has some redness. Um, this is another finding that we can see with inflammatory cancer. It can also happen with infection, um, but again, it's something that can be a sign of cancer. So it needs to, you know, phone call immediate, don't sit on it, um, come in and have it looked at. Uh, next slide. Okay. So back to the imaging modalities. Um, 2D mammogram, uh, tomosynthesis, which is also called 3D mammogram. What are the differences? So 2D is, you know, you have your standard views. They compress your breasts one way, top to bottom and side to side. Um, for 3D, they do the same thing, but instead of the, the um, radiograph taking just one picture, it takes little pulse pictures as the arm moves across. So it's going stepwise through. So it's more similar if you're looking through a forest and trying to see the other side through the trees. Um, what 3D uh, does in, in addition to 2D is it will take you 10 feet through the trees at a time so you can catch things earlier. So 3D mammogram is superior to 2D mammogram. They are used together in conjunction. Uh, across all age groups and breast densities, it's superior. It's more sensitive. It detects more invasive breast cancers than 2D. Uh, it's more specific. So meaning there's fewer false positives. There's less people called in because we think we see something. If you're called in with a 3D, it's more likely a real finding than being called back for a, a 2D mammogram only 
um, which a lot of times get the extra pictures and you're done. So one of the advantages of 3D is you're not getting those extra views. The extra radiation, the small dose that you're getting for 3D is a lot less than you would get if you have a callback for 2D and have all those extra views. So definitely worth a, a slight increase in radiation levels. Next slide. Screening ultrasound um, is in patient with a dense breast, the breast tissue on imaging is very white. And because cancers also appear on mammogram as white, it's almost like looking for a polar bear in the snow. They're not as easy to see. So in conjunction to, you know, using a 3D or a tomosynthesis stepwise uh, mammogram, um, ultrasound is used. Ultrasound will look into all the dense areas and characterize if there's something there. So screening ultrasound helps with dense tissue and should be used. Screening mammogram uh, is used in conjunction with um, the ultrasound to increase the early diagnosis of breast cancer. Ultrasound is not used instead of it because ultrasound sees only little portions of the breast at a time and you can't ever really see the full breast and you can't see calcifications, which are an very early sign of mammogram imaging, radiograph imaging of breast cancer. So that can be missed on an ultrasound. So they really have to be used in conjunction. I do get questioned a lot from patients. Well, if my breast is dense and you can't see a lot of mammogram, why can't I just do ultrasound? You really do need both. There's um, benefits of each and together is where you get that increased um, detection of cancer. Next slide. So this is just some pictures. Um, this is a patient with a breast lump. Uh, we, when you come in and you have a breast lump, they will put a little marker on you that picks up on the x-ray and you see they put the little triangle and that little triangle is where the patient feels a lump. And you can see in these dense tissue that's all solid white because it's glandular tissue, it might just be a younger patient or just genetically dense breast in an older patient, uh, you can't see a mass. And here is the same spot where they did this image and you see the mass there clearly in, in C. So that's the importance of ultrasound. Ultrasound picked up where the mammogram could not. Next slide. Okay. So not everybody needs an MRI. I do have patients that come in and they, they you know, want an MRI done and can't understand why they can't be screened with MRI or why insurance doesn't cover it. MRI is very, very sensitive. It's not nearly as specific as mammogram. What this means is it picks up a lot of things because it's used based on how quickly the breast picks up dye. It's, you contrast dye is given through an IV while you get an MRI. And when it picks up at a certain rate and lets go at a certain rate, it looks like something that could be cancerous. And, and if it doesn't, something that's benign. However, because it's not specific, it's sensitive, but not specific, there's a lot of false positives. So there's a lot of biopsies to prove that it is um, a benign finding and, uh, or, or a cancerous finding. And um, every biopsy that you get even if it's completely benign, does slightly increase your risk for breast cancer. So when you have them telling you come back in six months, we're not going to put a needle in, that is why. There are certain cases where how you do is not going to change based on now or in six months. So it's better to not put that needle in because it's probably not a cancer. So with MRI, you're going to get more biopsies. 
that risk of slight increased risk of breast cancer with biopsy is only worth it if you're already at a high, high risk. You don't want to become high risk from too many biopsies. So once you get to a lifetime risk of breast cancer that's greater than 20% um, based on one of the approved risk assessment models, this is where MRI is needed. It really isn't found to be that useful other than unnecessary biopsies in people that don't have at least that risk. Um, it's also used in patients with a new breast cancer. It's used in patients um, with genetic mutations that increase their risk for breast cancer. Um, some patients haven't been tested, but they have a first degree relative with a mutation and that's a mutation carrier, so it benefits them. There's also cases where mammogram and ultrasound are not making sense. We can't, they're inconclusive. We can't tell they're conflicting. And so MRI is useful in that case. It's also useful in uh, people who've had radiation. So remember uh, radiation between the ages of 10 and 30 for other various diseases puts you at an increased risk. So MRI is useful in screening because the risk is high enough and above that 20%. Next slide. So indications for genetic testing. Um, there's one on here that I see that is wrong, ignore history of radiation, but family history of multiple people with breast cancer, ovarian cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, pancreatic cancer, all on the same side, all maternal, all on mom's side or all on dad's side, paternal. Um, these are all indications that you may have the, the BRCA gene mutation uh, because all these cancers are inherited with that gene. Uh, bilateral breast cancer is also indication you have a bilateral breast cancer before the age of um, 60, especially, but also any bilateral, it, you're at an increase of us finding a gene that caused it. If there's a family history of male breast cancer, there's a higher risk that you're carrying a genetic mutation. Ashkenazi Jewish heritage in a family history of breast cancer, there's a specific mutation narrowed down on that whole BRCA uh, gene mutation panel uh, that's tested for. If you have family history of somebody with a gene mutation for breast cancer, um, you're at risk. And if you were newly diagnosed with breast cancer before the age of 50, but particularly before the age of 45, uh, or if you have a triple negative breast cancer before the age of 60, you're at increased risk of having a gene mutation and should see a genetic counselor to help determine treatment course. Next slide. Okay, how do we treat breast cancer? Breast conservation, which is keeping the breast. Um, mastectomy, which is removal of the breast, and this can be done with or without reconstruction. There's skin sparing, where the skin is, is uh, spared and kept and with immediate reconstruction. And this can also be done in certain patients with nipple sparing. Uh, and it's not everybody. It depends on where in the breast your cancer is, how close it is to the nipple, how close it is to the skin, uh, what type of breast cancer. Um, so there's lots of factors, the shape of the breast. Some breasts are large and hanging. And if you try to do nipple sparing, there's not enough blood supply once the breast is gone to keep the nipple alive. So there's lots of factors, but these are various ways that it can be treated. Sentinel lymph node is a type of biopsy procedure where a few of the lymph nodes under the arm and the armpit are removed and tested for um, cancer. And this is used in invasive cancer. Um, and not for everybody, but the majority of people will get this. So it, it's not always indicated in people that are above the age of, of 
70. And it's not always indicated, um, it's rarely indicated if you have stage zero cancer to check the, the lymph nodes under the arm. Sometimes radiation therapy is needed. And uh, if you are below the age of 70 and you're conserving your breast, you're keeping your breast, then you definitely um, will need radiation therapy. Okay, so invasive breast cancer uh, in particular, but breast cancer below the age of 70, breast conservation goes with radiation. That's chest uh, radiation therapy to the area. It's a local treatment. Sometimes chemotherapy is needed for breast cancer. And again, it's gonna be based on what type of breast cancer, what stage it is, um, another scoring system that's called Oncotype. So breast cancer treatment is very specific. Your breast cancer, if you got it, is not your friend's breast cancer. They might've had a stage zero and required a mastectomy because the stage zero cells were all over their breast. And you might've a stage three and you were able to get away with conserving your breast. It's very different. They might need chemotherapy for a tiny little cancer because they have a triple negative and you might have a bigger cancer that doesn't need any chemotherapy. So it's very tailored treatment to your type of tumor. It's no longer the day and time where everybody sort of got the same treatment and we just threw it at you and hoped. Um, so it, it's very specific. It's hormone blocking therapy is needed quite often because as you saw the majority of the breast cancers are driven by estrogen. So something to bring estrogen levels down, which is given in a pill form for five to 10 years is very common. Next slide. These are types of uh, surgeries. Just this is a common incision that you'll see for breast conservation. Um, so you'll see the incision over the site of the cancer for lumpectomy. You'll see the incision under the arm for the, you'll see in the armpit there for uh, the sentinel lymphoid biopsy. For the mastectomy, the picture on the right, you'll just see a straight scar where the nipple was. This is an unreconstructed mastectomy, just a flat chest, flat scar across. Um, and that's lumpectomy versus mastectomy in that scenario. Next slide. When we're doing nipple sparing mastectomies, there's various incisions that are done. Um, you see incision A, where you have an incision kind of around the areola and extending out. Sometimes there's an incision just extending out or straight through the nipple. And another common area is um, in the inframammary fold of the breast underneath. Some people get nipple sparing and their scar is directly over the tumor because even though the tumor is not near the nipple, it is near the skin. So they might have an upper inner quadrant or outer quadrant by the armpit incision, straight line, you know, diagonal where skin was removed, and yet they have the nipple spared because it was no near, nowhere near the nipple. So those are various incisions that we see with that. Next slide. This is somebody with a radial incision um, out from the, the side of the nipple that has had a nipple sparing um, mastectomy reconstruction with implants. There's various reconstructions. Sometimes the reconstructive surgeon that does the um, reconstruction after the mastectomy is done will use implant based. Sometimes they will use autologous, which is just your own body tissue from your belly or your back or somewhere else to move to create the breast mound underneath that skin and nipple that's spared because now the breast is gone. Next slide. This is a nipple sparing um, mastectomy um, with an inframammary fold. So in the fold of the breast underneath, you see the um, incision that is 
is there. Next slide. Okay, that is it. Um, I am getting a low battery signal, but I think I should be fine for questions. Okay, so while the doctor is getting her device plugged in, if you have any questions, please type them into the chat box. And as a reminder, um, the doctor can't provide medical advice to attendees. So um, one of the questions was, um, why would someone not take a biopsy if they, well, I guess the question got cut off. Um, so the question is, why would they not take a biopsy when they have? Okay. Okay, so there are there is a category. There's a system called BIRADS, which is used so universally wherever you have your imaging done, the next person that you go to knows what that person thought. The imaging BIRADS is zero means we didn't get a good enough picture, come back in. It doesn't mean anything bad. It just means they grasped your breast the wrong way. They have to regrasp it. Um, one means it's completely normal plus there's no findings at all. Two is it's normal, but we have findings like normal findings, lymph nodes in the breast that you can see that not everybody shares, but are perfectly anatomically normal. So this one has a lymph node here, but we know it's a lymph node, it's a two. Three is, this looks like it is benign. Um, this looks like it is benign, but uh, we are gonna do a six month follow-up just to make sure it is benign. Now this is the category that makes everybody nervous, but they've done studies. What happens if we image you at zero mark or we, you know, right away, we image you and then biopsy you, or we image you at three months and biopsy if it changes or six months and biopsy if it changes. And when they, when they looked at these categories, three months was too soon to notice a change. So they would miss it if they went from three months to a year. Six months, if it changed and they biopsied it then, and it was cancer versus biopsying right away, the stage prognosis, survival, nothing changed. The can it was such a benign appearance because it was such a low grade, you know, benign or, or non-aggressive type of cancer that, and that's why it looked like it was benign, that no, there was no difference if they biopsy right away or six months later. So the difference it makes is instead of biopsying a hundred people with this finding, we biopsy maybe 20, and of the 20, maybe 10, you know, not even 10, five will actually have cancer. But those five, if we biopsied them right away, their stage prognosis survival for cancer would be the same biopsying at month one versus month six. So that's the category three. So it prevents too many biopsies from, from occurring and patients happening to go through too many unnecessary biopsies. Four is, this is probably benign, but if we wait six months, then that difference in survival will be there. So we can't wait, we have to biopsy it right away. Five is we know this is cancer. So we're biopsying it so we can know what type and move on to treatment. And there's a category six when we're doing additional imaging for people that have, um, we're doing additional imaging for people that we know have cancer, but we need to do surgical planning. They're a six. So that's the categories. And that's the difference between three and four. Any patient that really wants a biopsy with three can get the biopsy. Nobody's going to not do it. But as long as you know that every time you get a three, if you get a biopsy, you are increasing your risk for breast cancer. That's why we don't recommend it. Okay. And then um, should someone have blood work done if their daughter had breast cancer? Um, it looks like their doctor had said no, but is, um, 
Is it because it was expensive or it's not covered by insurance? So if the daughter had breast cancer, it depends on the age the daughter had breast cancer. So, you know, there's normal age for breast cancer. You can be 80 and you're, okay, so it looks like somebody wrote 50 is the age. 50 is a normal age that we start seeing breast cancer. So genetic testing, we start doing most uh, of the time it's beneficial below the age of 45. There's some insurance companies are still approving for below the age of 50. Uh, nobody's approving for 50 or above because we expect to see if you, if you um, I don't know if it's possible to flip back of the chart, but you see the number of breast cancers that happen in the 50s age group, we expect to see it. That's a normal age to get breast cancer. So one person in the family one person in the family having um, breast cancer, whether it's a first degree relative or not, is not gonna be uh, the patient that's approved for genetic screening. You can always get it. Nobody, again, nobody's gonna not give you a prescription for the genetic testing, but we cannot make your insurance company pay for it because it's not proven by evidence-based medicine. It's not proven to be beneficial. So they're not gonna pay for something that we know the chance of finding something is, is negligible. So, but we'll give it to you if you want to pay for it. There's not a physician in this world that's not going to give you that prescription for genetic testing. Okay. And then um, another person, I was told, I think, uh, I was told I have, I think, level three or four breast density. I've been getting 3D mammograms and tomosynthesis screenings. And going forward, should I get the screening ultrasound as well? This person is over 60. Uh, yes. If you have dense breasts, yes. If you are told that you have heterogeneously or extremely dense breasts, then you should have the 3D mammogram and the screening ultrasound. Yeah, that's what's recommended for dense breast tissue. Okay, does anyone have any other questions? Okay, so. We're good. Yeah, Thank you all for coming. All. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Armour. Oh, thank and, you for uh, having yeah. me. Pleasure. Yeah. Thank Take you care. so much. All right. Bye -bye. And everyone, thank you for joining us. Yes, and also, please join us uh, next month. We have a talk about diabetes and hearing loss that's scheduled for Friday, November 19th at 12 p.m. noon. So for more information about that program or to register, you could go to ebpl.org slash calendar. Okay. So thank you again, everyone. And take Bye -bye. care. And stay safe. Bye. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. You can enjoy our previous episodes by subscribing now using your favorite podcasting app. To learn more about the East Brunswick Public Library, visit our website at www.ebpl.org.